excited to um, talk to you about risk and uncertainty. Um, and what we thought we might do is, is have a discussion, um, but also have a discussion uh, with everyone in the audience and, and take questions and just have an interactive event rather than us uh, talking all the time um, and, uh, and you guys listening. So maybe we, uh, we'll start off uh, with a few minutes um, discussing the idea of, of post-truth uh, from our uh, perspectives. Um, and, and maybe we can start off with a little anecdote about how, how David and I navigate the world. Uh, here you can see David on top of, uh, uh, well, I'm not supposed to say what college it is, uh, but uh, you know, he's, uh, he's on top of a building um, thinking up our risky uh, experiments. Um, but, but we have quite different risk preferences. So, so I'm, I don't like heights that much. So you can see here uh, me being quite <laughs> risk, risk averse. Uh, to the whole endeavor, uh, but uh, David is much braver than, uh, uh, than me. Uh, but I thought it was a, a nice anecdote because we have very different attitudes towards risk, uh, as, as you can see, um, and uh, I think that's true for, for most people. Um, so maybe as a, as a warm-up, we thought we'd do a little fake news quiz. Um, fake news, such a topical uh, subject. So we, we have a quiz, um, and uh, all of these stories were really widely reported. And then we're going to ask you which one is, uh, is true. So out of these three, uh, which one really happened? So the first is uh, Putin issues international arrest warrant for George Soros. Um, who think that really happened? Let's do just a raise of hands if you think that that was a real story. OK. Few people, few people. Um, Black Lives Matter thug protests President Trump with selfie accidentally shoots himself in the face. Who think that really happened? OK. All right, good show of hands, good show of hands. How about the, uh, the last one? Passenger allowed onto flight after security confiscate his bomb. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, David, okay, good, good. Um, that's good, that really happened. Uh, yeah, pretty good. We've got a risk-savvy a risk audience. My explanation for this is this happened in Canada, so they were super friendly and they said, okay, well, come on the plane anyway. It's all right. Um, good. All right, post-truth. Um, so maybe we'll do a few minutes sharing our thoughts on, uh, on the idea of post-truth and what we, what we both think, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have a discussion um, and see how it evolves from, uh, from there. Um, now, David and I, you know, as a mathematician, statistician, and psychologist, we, we do a lot of, of work in, in common, but also have some unique perspectives. To me, post-truth is, uh, is an interesting concept. You know, Oxford named it word of the year. Everyone's using it. Um, to me, you know, people often ask me, how is, how is this different from, you know, rumors that have been going on since the dawn of uh, humanity, and, and how are things really different now with the sort of post-truth? Haven't politicians always lied, and, and what's really new? And so I think what, what's so interesting about the dilemma to me is that, yes, um, th that's true, uh, but back in the day, you know, what means did you have to quickly fact check whether or not uh, what somebody is saying is true? If the king said something or if you're listening to the radio and that's the only medium that you had at the time, how would you know um, if what is being said is actually true or false or in between? Uh, it was much more difficult for people to actually find, uh, find out the truth and to see, well, you know, truth. Um, um, but get a sense of the facts and the science. And what's so interesting is that now we have such advanced capabilities uh, to fact check, to you know, find libraries online, Googling. You can find so much information online, and somehow uh, people are not always endorsing the science and the facts. In fact, coming up with alternative facts 
and I think there's this flip side to the internet and the whole revolution of the information age is that now you can tailor you know, what facts you like uh, just as easily. So you can Google stuff, is the earth flat? You will find people who agree with you. Uh, you know? And so uh, it's not that difficult anymore for people to you know, f basically go out and find facts that support your worldview. Um, whereas at the same time, you can actually find out the facts uh, from reliable sources at you know, an immense, immensely fast pace as well. So I think we have this juxtaposition, and I think that's, that's really interesting, and that's what post-truth means to me, that even though we have the capabilities now, somehow we're not really using them all of the time to, uh, to our advantage. Um, so I think that's, that's really one part uh, of my view on this. Um, what do you think, David? I, I would agree. I, do, you know, I don't think there's anything new about, about false news, about misinformation, about propaganda. That's been going on forever and ever, as uh, Ian Hislop's good program recently you, you know, showed. And so that's not new at all. But I think I agree with Sander that what's changed is the, both the ability to push this stuff out because we're not constrained to the mainstream media, bad though they can be themselves, as I show later on. Um, but you know, that we Trump directly being able to tweet you know, and, and so on. The, the, the media's changed so much, the ability to directly give a contact between people and audiences. Um, but as, as um, uh, you know, the Rooney, um, you know, uh, you know, episode has shown sometimes that can really empower people to be able to directly uh, contact audiences and, and, and uh, avoid uh, the standard media. So what I'd say is that that's changed. But also, as we're going to show as well, the, the, the capacity to call out fake claims, false claims and false news has also grown. So the, in a sense, the, the, the ability to make the claims has grown and the ability to propagate them has grown, but also the ability through, fact, through as methods we're going to show in a moment to actually counter that. And the interest in countering it has grown as well and to recognize that this is an issue. So it's just, I, don't, I think it's always been there, it's just that it's now become uh, an issue that is much more uh, in people's minds, both in terms of what's happening and what we might be able to do about it. And I hope within this, time, this period, we're gonna be able to deal with you know, what some of the problems are and talk about what we might be able to do about it. Yeah, that's great. Um, in fact, you, you're, you're a prominent example of, of someone who's, who speaks out against bad numbers in, uh, in the news uh, and, and misreporting of yeah, evidence. Do you think it's incumbent among scientists? To, to well, we'll come on to that about okay. the role of scientists. But yeah, my particular interest being a, a statistician uh, is about numbers in the news. And we'll talk about the numbers in the news. There are many other ways to solve false claims that can be made. Um, but I think the uh, actual sort of uh, misinformation about numbers and fact, and scientific facts, is extraordinarily important now. Right, right, yeah. Um, maybe we can we can segue into uh, uh, something I've been uh, uh, I've been thinking about. Um, is that if you know in psychology there's there's a big debate about whether the human brain is is a Bayesian or not. Um, and uh, the idea is that that if you have uh, you know, a belief, you're supposed to, to update your beliefs if you're confronted with evidence. Um, that, that's really the key thing of it. And so, you know, you see a graph that, that hopefully, you know, you have some prior belief and you see evidence and hopefully your, your updated belief will, will move towards the evidence. On the left, there's a bit more of a complicated uh, mathematical scheme here with uh, thetas and, uh, and priors, and maybe David can can introduce <laughs> the idea of Bayesian updating a little well, bit. Well, I'm not going to do the mathematics of it, although that's what I've done for my technical career, I used to do this stuff. But the basic idea of Bayesian is that you do have within you a set of expectations and prior beliefs, 
and then you receive evidence and you update those expectations. And, and certainly in terms of just the way we, which we move around the world, I think it's just generally accepted now, is that the brain is, you know, how we operate is by constantly predicting what's going to happen and only really noticing things that conflict with those predictions. Because otherwise, we, every time we turned a corner, it'd be the whole, we'd be overloaded by the, by the information. You know, when it, if it's a familiar place, we know what we're going to expect, and we'll, but we'll spot immediately if something different from what it normally is. And that's how the brain seems to work, and that's enormously efficient. But the crucial thing is, you could say, is that you know, the idea that people who are resilient to facts or just you know, right. we st stick to beliefs that actually just seem patently untrue, and, you know, and, and whatever information you provide, people you know, just stick to what they say and just, just rule out, oh, you know, that's not right, that's not right. Um, in a sense, they are being internally rational if you take this model, because what it just means is that they, by assumption, they have cut off certain things that are just not pos possible. And therefore, the up they don't update their beliefs or according to, they, they are, you know, uh, being Bayesian. It's just that their assumptions are wrong right from the beginning. It's not they're being irrational or stupid. It's just that they are just making initial assumptions. And what's nice, oh, we, could, we yeah. could come back to that later, oh, just briefly then. You know, what's, if we're thinking about this mathematically, um, what's nice is the stuff I used to work on ages ago showed that if you only have a small probability that you may be mistaken, a little epsilon of belief across all other possibilities except for the ones you really believe in, just if you smear the slightest bit of doubt across, then the moment something comes in which is really new and conflicts with your expectations, you will shift your opinion very quickly indeed. And that's mathematically easy to show, and it works very nicely in systems that are constantly having to adapt to new information. And um, the, the Crom can I do Cromwell's law? Cromwell's yeah, law. Yeah. This is called Cromwell's law. And it basically says that we all ought to have a little probability that we may be wrong. We should, otherwise, we can never learn properly from experience. And it's due to Oliver Cromwell, when, when he was about to uh, you know, invade Scotland and the Church of Scotland was holding on to him and he was trying to avoid a war. And he sent a letter to the Church of Scotland saying, I beseech thee in the bowels of Christ think it possible you may be mistaken. But of course they didn't have any of that humility and he had to defeat them and, and you know, endless lives lost. But so they didn't believe they were, could be mistaken. So that, just remember, I beseech thee in the bowels of Christ, think it possible you may be mistaken. And that's and basically saying how we should all have the humility to admit even a tiny probability we may be wrong. Yeah, I love that idea. So, so what's really interesting is, is that, at least in psychology, there, there's this view now that people's prior beliefs are completely fixed, right? And so we're operating on this. The new model of the human brain is, is essentially that, you know, people's prior beliefs are fixed. They, they believe what they want to believe. There's no flexibility. There's no room for, for you know, if you, if, you, if you vote for this person, you believe this. If you vote for this party, you believe that. Uh, there's absolutely no wiggle room. And that's why people are not updating and ignoring the evidence. And that's why... Uh, fact-checking and, and so on is having no effect. Uh, and so this thing that you were talking about, that you know, um, if, if, you know, if it can be mathematically shown that if you leave a little bit of room for you know, a small probability for being open uh, or uncertain, and in fact the theme of this talk, right, uncertain about what you believe, not being overconfident in what we believe, but having some uncertainty about what our beliefs are and, and that we might be wrong in some uh, instances, um, that could actually dramatically change uh, the way that, that people update uh, towards evidence and revise their beliefs. I and think they, it's really we, we could come back to that when we talk about what could be done to counter 
misinformation. Yep, definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, certainly, when I have ideas and, and, and David tells me it's all nonsense, I, I update my beliefs more towards the, uh, uh, towards the correct <laughs> answer, so, you know, but, but somehow not everyone uh, is doing that. Um, so so let's, let's do an example of, of what we just talked about. Which crowd is bigger? Okay. <laughs> What's that? Oh, turn the lights down a bit. Yeah, yeah, can we, can we turn the lights down a bit? Right. Then we'll know how that works. <laughs> oh, you've probably got... Oh, oh. oh. Well, you carry on. You carry on. I'll try to do sure. it. Sure. I hope I won't. Oh, yeah, okay. Probably be good to yeah, see right. a bit less magic, of this anyway. Magic. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Um, so I, I won't go into a discussion about deepfakes and manipulating online images and, uh, and things. We, we can come back to, you know, uh, uh, real um, propaganda and uh, deception uh, later on. Um, but what's interesting is that this is a, this is a fact. Uh, uh, how many people, you know, turn up for an inauguration uh, um, and I've, have you looked into the science of that? I looked into this quite a bit, how they measure that. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting. And, and, and actually how much uncertainty there is because they have to use different angles, you know, imagery, and have to you know, compile it all together and produce some estimate uh, of how many people were there. But, but there's a big interval around the number. And what's interesting that then somehow uh, this can be used to, uh, uh, to play around with the, uh, the actual number. Um, um, but I think the important thing is that it can be measured. Um, and so there is some uncertainty about it. But what's the post-truth of this scenario is this. People then make statements like, like this. Largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. Um, now, you know, it, it doesn't matter what, what you believe. This is just ridiculous regardless of what you believe, right? If you support the political candidate or not, um, a certain statement like that just doesn't make sense from a scientific perspective, I think, right? Because we're not acknowledging uncertainty about what we know. Um, and this, this portrays this sort of false sense of, of certainty with the, with the specific aim to persuade people. Um, and I think that that's kind of what's problematic. Uh, and this is kind of not allowing any sort of uncertainty uh, for being open about um, how many people were, were actually present. Um, and, and when that's used in politics, and it's used in, in lots of domains, we'll talk, David will talk about health later, uh, but, but when it's used in politics, I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite concerning. Um, yeah. Are we ready to go? Yeah, let's yeah. do. Well, you know, as the debate is going on today, I thought I've got to talk about Brexit and, and, and the use of numbers. And uh, since in the, I don't know if who was watching the debate this morning, it was used again, you know, um, if uh, we leave, if we're with this deal, um, every family's going to be 2,000, every person's going to be 2,000 pounds a year worse off. And um, that, you know, that was uh, the basis for this number that was used in the, by the Remain campaign. Every family's going to be 4,500 pounds, 4,300 pounds worse off. This is based a projection by the Treasury of a 7% reduction in GDP, which of course is highly uncertain. They gave an interval, but even that doesn't really express the uncertainty. And it's also created by taking the change in GDP and dividing by the number of families. Now that is not what happens. You know, if you, do, if you took GDP and divided by the number of families, every family would be only £60,000 a year. So, you know, you can't translate directly change in GDP to individual loss. And yet that was what was done this morning in the debate by the Remain camp. Because so, so this is really uh, big assumptions, no uncertainty being claimed there, and, um, and actually an inappropriate use of numbers. Because it's not as bad as that number, which I have to say, um, which is, uh, you know, let's, this, this number will run and run, um, zombie number, it, does, it refuses to go away. And, um, and that number is, we could say it's wrong, but I don't really want to deal with the fact that it's wrong. It's, a, as it's officially called a misuse of official statistics by the UK Stats Authority. What I want to talk about is the brilliance of that communication device of using that number. 
It is so clever. So what I want to set is a little competition to you. Okay, but think, if you were in the remain camp, assuming that number is correct, what would you put on the side of the bus to make it very unconvincing, to make the number look small? Because I think that bus shifted the, you know, won the, won the referendum. So what would you put on the, how would you, what, what tricks would you play? What's the first, tri well, there are two tricks you could do. Well, Oh, yeah, well, that's, oh, that's true. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good, that is a good point. Yeah, yeah. But let's say just this number, this, this number. How would I change that number? How it was framed? Yeah. Make it 0.35 billion. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, that's quite clever. 0.35 billion, yeah. Because nobody can tell the difference between billions and, and millions. Billions, millions, schmillions. <laughs> I mean, they're just zeros. Nobody can count them. Now, that one was not one of the ones I thought. And nobody understands decimals. So 0.35 billion... <laughs> would be really good to obscure it completely. Yeah, that's very good. I hadn't thought of that one. Right, and another one. Context. What's the context? What would you use? How much is NHS police? Yeah, NHS So the other thing, the thing is make it as a fraction of a bigger number. So if you did it as a percent, as, as GDP, that is less than 1% of GDP. That's rounding error on GDP. We don't know GDP to within 1%. So this is money back down the back of the sofa, essentially <laughs> compared with the GDP. So it's tiny, tiny compared with GDP. Okay, so that's one way. What's another way to make it look small? Is it yep, that's the classic one. That's what I'm going to do now. It's about 60 million people in the UK. We divide that, it's about six pounds a week. That's two cups of coffee from Starbucks a week each. But we can make it even worse. If we do it by day, it's about 80p a day. That's a packet of cheese and onion crisps. <laughs> We each send the EU the price of a packet of cheese and onion crisps every day. Let's give it to the NHS. Well, that's, that's not... That is not going to win you the referendum. So, you know, that was really clever bit of marketing. You know, the number was big enough so you could read it just looks big and it's per week, and you think, so it's very clever. So what it's, I wouldn't say, it's not fake news. It's, well, it is fake news because it's not the correct number. But never mind. It, what it just shows is the, the use of... The numbers don't speak for themselves. That's the cru crucial thing. We give them meaning. And their emotional impact depends on how the story's told. Whether we like them or don't like them, we, we warm to them, we're reassured by them, or, or it's project fear, we're worried by them. So the point about this is that actually then to admit risk and uncertainty makes it incredibly difficult to do this in a way that is not manipulative. Because almost always someone's trying to, whenever I hear any number, I think someone's trying to either frighten me or reassure me. Someone's trying to manipulate my emotions, and it's usually the case. So this is something that, you know, I think, well, we need to learn how to, de how to deal with. Okay, so um, just to, before I finish, um, like come back to this, I'm interested in, in science and, you know, and sort of statistics. And just to, it's important to realize that when we see a news story or, you know, on the news or in the newspaper or online, you know, the, the process by which it's arrived at us. First of all, someone at the top has got to have done the research, you know, a, um, you know, a, a scientist or something like that, or somebody done a survey. And then you've got the, it's got to be, then it's filtered through the publication process or the people who actually commission the work. Now, no journalist actually reads scientific journals. Like that. They have to rely on press releases and the press officers to pass it to them. 
And then, of course, it goes to the editors who, who, who decide whether to run the story and edit it and change the text and put the headline on. The journalist does not write the headline. And then finally we see it. And my feeling is that I got, I got you know this story about Groucho Marx who said that I would never join a club who, who, which would have me as a member. It's a lovely bit of paradox. I've got what I call the Groucho principle about any story I hear in the news that contains a statistic or is based on a statistic. And the very fact that I'm hearing this story is reason to believe it's wrong. <laughs> and therefore I shouldn't listen to it. Which is great, it means you can save a lot of time. Um, because almost all, especially with health, the only reason that's in the news is because it, it, it is encounters popular wisdom. It's something different from what's, it's newsworthy, which almost certainly means it's wrong. So uh, we've got to be extremely, we'll come back later to how we might deal with this process. Okay, so just to finish off before we open it up for discussion, I think I'd just like to tell a story about how this sort of series of whispers arise to produce misinformation to us. And it start, can start with something very respectable. This was an extremely boring uh, paper from Sweden, um, which followed four million people, and which concluded that uh, we observed consistent associations between higher socioeconomic positions and higher risk of glioma. Richer men got more brain tumors. Now, they said that might be completely an artifact of how the data was collected. Why would it not possibly be true? What, what, what could have gone wrong? What's it? Yeah? Yes, exactly. Richer people seek out healthcare more, they're more likely to be diagnosed with, with severe conditions. And, that, and that's what the author said. This could be a complete artifact. The other thing, of course, is that richer people live longer, have more opportunity to get a brain tumor, but they, they allowed for that in the analysis. They did age adjusted analysis. Okay, but the point is that they said all that. And, but the press office thought, oh, come on, we've got to make a good story out of this. So they said in the press release that high levels of education <laughs> was linked to heightened brain tumor risk. Now, the study wasn't about education, but never mind. That was in a table somewhere, so they put that in. And I think you can guess what's going to happen. By the time this gets to the Daily Mirror, we get, why, why going to university <laughs> increases the risk of getting a brain tumor, which is not accurate news. And you see, we started off with something perfectly respectable and scientific. By the time it's gone through this process, it's complete rubbish. And, uh, and you know, I think what I'd like to talk about is how can we deal with that? What can we do about this? Okay, so, um, oh, just one final thing. One final little bit of propaganda. The problem is that sometimes the scientists are not so worthy and ethical and balanced. Sometimes the scientists want to promote the misinformation themselves. So you may have heard this, seen this story, the insect apocalypse, insects are gonna disappear, going down at 40% uh, are declining, precipitous, falling at 2.5% a year, no insects within a century, and this got a lot of publicity. Okay, do we believe this? Is this misinformation? Okay, so we go back to the journal, and this was a published paper, peer review, systematic review of the literature, and uh, they were criticized because it was mainly European studies, it wasn't worldwide, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, there's a much more deeper reason to find this suspicious, and the authors gave it away themselves. Because if you go to the end of the paper, they put in how they did the review, the, the literature, and they did a systematic review, which is what they should do. And what they said, we performed a search on the online web of science database using the word insect and survey and decline. So they looked for papers that mentioned a decline, and guess what? They concluded there had been a decline. <laughs> it's completely spurious. 
You know, they just looked for the evidence that supported what they wanted to show. And they were completely unapologetic about this. They said, oh, we can't wait for the statistics. This is an important problem. We have to convince people. So th that's an extreme example of what I call white hat bias. Have you heard white hat bias? That's great. It's in Wikipedia, so it must be true. So it's, it's a white hat bias is people who feel that they can fiddle with the truth because they're on the side of righteousness, because they're the goodies. So we don't have to do good science. We can promote bad science. You know, actually, this is terrible science because this is a real serious problem. And they're right, it is a really serious problem, and it'd be terrible if insects went down. However, this, all this does is make me deeply suspicious of all claims in this area. Okay, so with that, I'm going to stop. And, Should we pause uh, and open up for questions? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Or comments? So we, we've got other stuff we can talk about, but, and we, you know, we'll try to cram it in. But essentially now, we'd like to do it, open it up. So, questions. Anybody want to ask any questions? <coughs> to a psychologist and a statistician. <laughs> so, when you were talking about overconfidence in regards to the Trump inauguration, I was reminded of a few authors that talk about social psychology or cognitive psychologies and biases, uh, namely Taleb and Tatlock and Kahneman. Right. And Tatlock specifically had a popular publication when it came to overconfidence of experts, the so-called maybe the white related to the white hat bias that you mentioned. And Taleb also, all, Taleb and Kahneman, they both mention the gains, the personal gains that come from overconfidence. I mean, I think it was the Reagan and Reagan or Bush and Carter during the, in the US during the 70s, where Carter was much more subdued, but also, as far as I can tell, a bit more factual. And Reagan was the complete opposite. He was very much, very confident in his claims and he was never wrong. And yet, Reagan won. So, how do how how do you deal with that, with the fact that apparently w the public prefers overconfidence? Oh. They don't really, they don't, they don't put that much weight in facts, and yeah. even scientists, because mm -hmm. the Tatlock example is exactly that, following predictions for anyone who doesn't know, he followed predictions from different scientists, different social scientists and political scientists. And when it came time to measure the update of their beliefs, a lot of them didn't update. Mm. They found some specific reason why, mm. oh, I was, mm. no, mm. I was right. Mm. As long, it was just that, that 1%, I was wrong, even though he was entirely wrong. Mm. But so just talk yeah. a little bit about how that overconfidence interacts with yeah. the research that you're showing us. Yeah. Thank you. Should I start or you do want to go? Maybe I'll do a brief and you, yeah, can, you yeah. can dive in. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. I mean, uh, psychologically, I, I do think overconfidence has benefits to the person who is being overconfident because uh, people are sometimes attracted to confidence because it reassures um, you know, particular beliefs about uh, whether somebody is going to, you know, make a change or be competent. And so if you come across as overconfident, that might seem appealing. Of course, Donald Trump is a prime example of somebody who says things that are on a spectrum of false, uh, uh, but appears extremely confident uh, about what they know. Um, 
And I think that, that does appeal to people, but I think it's, that's, that's, that's not a good thing. I think to, to some extent people who are overconfident, if you look at accuracy, and there's lots of studies on this, there's a huge gap between the more people think they know uh, and the confidence they have. Uh, and it turns out that people who are extremely confident uh, tend to have the worst actual factual knowledge uh, about, about certain things. And that's a really interesting paradox. I'm not sure how to fix that. We were talking about there's some constructs in, in, in the psychological literature, things like actively open-minded thinking, uh, being humble about what we know, and promoting um, you know, a culture where we, where we can openly question um, uh, things. And, and I guess the replication crisis ties into, uh, into some extent, uh, about um, being a function to some extent of this sort of demand for certainty and pitching findings that seem you know, attractive but, but actually aren't, and, and people's worried that if they're honest about how much uncertainty there is, uh, people won't like it. And I think we need to have an important debate about the role of, of uncertainty uh, um, in our beliefs and everyone being okay with that and acknowledging that. And I think that's, the, that's just a tricky thing. Yeah, I mean, I think you need to really distinguish about whether you know, people are trying to inform others and be genuine, honest, to tell people how things are, in which case, um, you know, there's a clear role for some humility and acknowledgement of uncertainty. And if you're trying to persuade people to follow you and to trust you and to believe you uh, and so on, and, you know, clearly in the past, actually being, it's been much more persuasive to be arrogant and confident rather than humble and uncertain, um, because that seems much sexier and, you know, bolder and, yes, yeah, I can follow this person, even if they're wrong. And you can see that happening all the time. You see it happening now with, with um, attractive personalities who actually, you know, whether they're right or wrong is, is less relevant than whether they're just confident in what they can do. Whatever. And, um, and this is, I mean, again, an eternal problem with, with following, with, with who's, who's the sort of person who is convincing. Um, are you, are you, should we go on to trust? Can we go on to trust on this? I think should we do that? Sure. Yeah, because I, I think that this this comes down to you know about about trust. You know that you know who should you trust? Somebody who's you know confident, right? or somebody who actually is admitting they don't know. And we got a whole program which we're working with Sandra on. on um, you know, can we communicate our uncertainty? You know, with some humility, without losing trust and credibility. Um, I think I think that's a really important thing. Is just also can we tell trustworthy stories that are, do have uncertainty in, in them, and yet still are people are engaged with them and interesting. I, there's no point in being trustworthy if you're boring. So I think you know how can we retain the audience and not be sort of humble and shuffling and nobody taking any notice of you, um, and yet actually be honest about it. I think that's a I don't know if well, let's do a practical example before you dive into, into the uh, trustworthiness. Imagine that you're a, po you're a politician and you say, you know, I'm going to fix the economy um, here you know, in the UK oh, yeah. or anywhere. That sounds great. Well, I'm going to fix the economy. That's a pretty certain statement. I'm going to support that person. Uh, but what if you said, I'm going to fix the economy, but actually it's pretty much out of my control. So you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about how that's going to play out. Who's going to support you if you say that, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the tricky thing is how can people trust you and how can you be honest at the same time? And, and this is, you know, most doctors uh, you know, are the most trusted profession. Um, uh, and nurses are usually up there, are up there as well. Um, but, uh, and, and it's, it's co of course a big debate there about can doctors admit uncertainty to people? And that's currently going on. And a lot of training is going on to doctors about how to admit uncertainty without, while retaining that trust. So this is an active area that people are engaging in. I love the judges, the scientists, hairdressers. But hairdressers uh, are an untapped source of trust, uh, yeah, know, yeah. according about, to... Yeah, they, you get your advice from hairdressers, especially about where to go on holiday. And, uh, but the, um, yeah, and uh, of course, politicians and, and, and uh, journalists are way down the bottom. 
Um, but um, you know, when we get on to trust, and I got Anura Neal, great Cambridge you know, you know, uh, person, and um, she's, she's just brilliant. And she, the, I, I do a couple of things I always quote from her. And one is that we shouldn't be trying to be trusted. Organizations should not try to be trusted. That's the one thing. We should try to demonstrate trustworthiness. So she she's studies Kant and you have this duty to be honest and express our trust, well, you know, uh, to be trustworthy in the statements we make. Well, this has had an enormous influence on our work, on the work in government, Office for National Statistics. Their first pillar of their code of practice is demonstrating trustworthiness. And it's, a, no, it's just a simple flip. Basically, it says, instead of us all going around, oh, I want to be trusted, I want to be trusted, it flips around to put the duty of onus on us to demonstrate trustworthiness. And, um, and she's got this other, these are the, the, uh, these quick little sound bites that she's great at doing. Okay, if, if you are going to be, provide trustworthy information, then give people, you're not trying to manipulate people, you are trying to inform people in a genuine way. You're not trying to, um, uh, it's not propaganda. She says, you've got to do four things. You've got to make your information accessible, people have got to be able to get at it. Uh, it's got to be intelligible, people have got to be able to understand it. It's got to be usable. It's got to answer people's concerns. It's got to actually address what they're interested in and not go off track. And this is the final one. It's great. It's got to be accessible. People need to be able to check your work in. You've got to have that humility to open up your reasoning to people, to critique. So isn't that amazing? That's what you get from being a, you know, a real jobbing philosopher. And we use that. We, we just do that in all our work, trying to do this. Now, this is setting a high standard for demonstrating trustworthiness. And I think that... Um, that is the way that we should be going, and admitting uncertainty is a huge part of that. Should we do the BBC a bit as an example of, uh, uh, of numbers and... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's the... That's the yeah. Uh, yeah. Part of, yeah, part of demonstration is admitting yeah. uncertainty. So, so this is a big, nice example. You must have seen this example. The BBC, reporting Office for National Statistics. Two wonderful, trustworthy bodies, surely. And they say, um, unemployment fell by 3,000. So do we believe that claim? Do we, who believes that claim? Who believes that one? Well, let's see how trustworthy that claim is. And we have to go on to the, it's difficult to find out. God, you've got to search for this. You go onto the website and you find that right down the table of contents, quality and methodology, and you find a dense bit of text. And right in the middle of the text, it tells you that the confidence interval around that is plus or minus 77,000. <laughs> <laughs> David will find it. It's great. They got no idea whether unemployment has gone up or gone down. Absolutely none. Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, so that is not a trustworthy communication. But importantly, we've uh, we've worked with the BBC on yep. this to try to improve the situation, and 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 we've done some really interesting experiments with them. So what we do is uh, uh, we show people the news on the BBC website. Um, very much like this, uh, but one news story will have no uncertainty, so it won't show the confidence interval, uh, essentially, or a variation of that. And another story uh, um, will show the actual uncertainty. Um, and, you know, they might have the, the, the null hypothesis or the idea that, well, maybe people don't, you know, like uncertainty, and that's a, that's a popular sort of conception and things we've been talking about. But it turns out, in all of our empirical studies that we've done so far, uh, people are totally fine uh, being reported uh, or, or reading these articles uh, with the quantified uncertainty around the numbers. It doesn't decrease trust. Yeah. 
Uh, people do think the numbers are more certain, are uncertain, but maybe that's a good thing, right? Uh, but it doesn't decrease trust. And so uh, I think that speaks to the importance of just being open and, and transparent. Yeah, so all the experiments that Sana and the team have done show that if you can be express your uncertainty with a reasonable sort of confidence about how uncertain you are, no decrease in trust, which is a, a wonderful finding. Okay, and it, so, yeah, let's go to questions. Yeah, questions. Yeah. Any more questions? Gentlemen up there. I don't have a white hat but I occasionally wear an editor's or journalist's hat. Ah. And it's an anecdote which I fear ties into that, actually. Earlier this year, I was presenting a, a, uh, a conference for investigative journalism, and the least attended um, was actually uh, statistics yeah. run by the ex-World Service editor involved with numbers. There were five people oh, no. compared to hundreds going oh. for Edward Snowden and oh, that sort of thing. Snob. And what he put forward was at the most basic of levels. This is undergraduate stroke people interested in. Mm -hmm. And it was like being, I'm an economist by training, mm -hmm. but it was like being in primary school. Yeah, it was yeah. appalling. Yeah. So I know you're going to come on to it, but how does one even try to get over the innumeracy oh. of... That's quite tricky. Well, you can try. I mean, we try to help journalists. Um, we are producing an app called Real Risk that will be available to all online to all journalists and press officers, which will enable people to take a, a relative risk, you know, something that says, oh, this increases the risk by 20%, and turn it into meaningful statistics in terms of how many people would have to you know, do this in order to save one life or something like that, and produce the graphics and the text that explains it. So we're trying to help in that way. Because journalists, especially health journalists, know they should be reporting you know, in a clear, transparent way, um, but uh, they, they don't, they're not able to do that. I think. Can I do? Can I do the bacon? Can I do? Sorry, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I know you want to hear about bacon sandwiches again. So I'm, I'm sorry to keep on doing bloody bacon sandwiches, but never mind. It is still in the news. Um, yeah, the rasher a day is is deadly. This is the. Yeah, come on. So this was the story. I was in March, and that's how that's how the Sun did it. It was wonderful. The killer bacon sandwich, and um, and, and this is Sean Wooler, who's actually very good. I, I talked to him. He's very keen on the, he likes the numbers, he wants to be able to communicate them. He didn't put that stupid headline. And the story underneath is rather good. So Sean, the Sun journalist, right. is excellent. Um, so once this is the actual data, 25 grams of processed meat a day associated with a 19% increased risk of getting bowel cancer, and, um, and you know, that's a slice of bacon or something. Then these relative risks are known to exaggerate the effect. You need absolute risks, you need 60% of people will get bowel cancer anyway. You're talking about a 19% increase over 6%. I know of no journalist who can do that calculation, sadly. So, so that's why we're, we're writing this app to help them. As you said, primary school stuff. Yeah. Um, and how you should do it, of course, is to say, what does it mean for 100 people? So 100 people like you, smug, middle-class Cambridge people eating your blueberries and compote every morning. Yeah, <laughs> disgusting. So, sadly, six out of 100 of you will still get bowel cancer during your lifetime. But 100 slobs who eat that every other day, that's... Oh, where's it gone? We've lost my one. Oh, lost me one. There should be one extra person there. So we, we move the slides over to new format. There should be one red person there. I don't know where they've gone. Anyway, there should be one extra person. That's the 19% increase over 6%. So 100 people have to eat that, you know, three, four times a week. 
to get all the, for the whole life to get one extra case. And this is what's known as using expected frequencies. Oh, and of course the story now is completely reversed. This was the sun a couple of weeks ago, bacon safe. No ifs or butties. And what I love, what I love, boffins conclude. <laughs> yes, they're all boffins, isn't it lovely? Had to explain what this meant to an international audience with a boffin. So the story oscillates all the time. And this is by this claim because it was based on exactly the same evidence. No change in the evidence whatsoever. So, um, but I think there's a deeper question too, right? I mean, it is true about the numbers and, 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 and journalism, but the budget for investigative journalism and for, for science journalists has just gone down, even at the BBC yeah. and everywhere. Yeah. It's a real shame yeah. um, that we're not investing the, in, in proper reporting. The, the science journalists and the health journalists, I think, are excellent. The editors are awful. But, but the journalists are very good indeed, and they know they should be doing this, and they want this information, and they're very happy to work, work with them. So, you know, I, I've got the highest opinion of the specialist journalists in this field. Right. And, all right, okay. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I don't know, I'd be rude about this, but I'm sure you never wrote a headline like that. <laughs> Oh, I see. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but again, it comes to business of storytelling. You know, I think it's again, it's the uh, the onus on on us to be able to tell engaging, trustworthy, reliable stories, admitting uncertainties and risks, in such a vivid way that people actually want to read them, and want to come to the talks. You know, so I I, I think it's it's, it's absolutely um, incumbent upon us as people who think that things should be done better. To, to improve what we're doing rather than just complaining all the time. So, anyway, but we have written a book on how to teach probability using these ideas of expected frequency. Okay. Any more questions? Can you address climate change and where we're at in relation to that and the, the balance of bias and trustworthiness? <laughs> yes. He does climate. Yes. <laughs> I do bacon. Let me, uh, <laughs> bacon. Do you eat bacon in the morning, David? Yeah, I did. I had bacon sandwich this morning. I felt, uh, I, felt I should, in, on principle. <laughs> Start the day with a carcinogen, I think. You know, the way, the way I come at this is, uh, and actually maybe this is a perfect, uh, perfect transition, um, this, this question, uh, because the, the issue of climate is, um, is very complicated. Uh, I think it's, it's a little bit less complicated, perhaps, in... Uh, um, in the uh, UK versus the United States. Can't seem to be able to uh, deal with technology here. Um, get in there. So there's this great um, movie and book called um, Merchants of Doubt. I'm not sure if, if any of you have heard of it. It's Naomi Oreskes, who's a science historian at Harvard, has documented uh, decades of concerted disinformation campaigns uh, to basically persuade the public of, uh, of various things. Uh, one was that there was no link between smoking and lung cancer, uh, and the other was that there's uh, no link between CO2 emissions and uh, climate change. And one of the interesting things about that is that they were basically attacking the, the science. Because we're dealing with models and correlations, causation is a complicated issue to explain, especially for climate scientists, because they can't just say, we've done an experiment and climate change is real. Um, and so they use that uncertainty, actually, because science is inherently uncertain, uh, to create what they call doubt campaigns, so manufacturers of doubt. So all they want is to create doubt 
on the consensus in science about something. So are humans causing climate change? Um, is smoking causing uh, lung cancer? And in fact, there was a Supreme Court decision in the United States issuing uh, a mandate for tobacco companies to run an ad campaign that says that they've openly lied to the public for decades, um, trying to obscure the evidence between smoking and lung cancer, um, and that they've been manipulating the public. And the same has happened with climate change. There are some parallels in the food industry uh, um, as well. And I think that's a, a huge issue. Um, and it's, it's about numbers, but also about persuasion techniques to influence people. So they won't try to get you to believe alternative facts. Um, but in fact, what they do is to try to undermine the scientific consensus by planting these sort of seeds uh, of doubt. You know, all the scientists agree. Let me show you some that don't agree. And what that does is it inflates your perception of the variation on an issue. So when there's a clear scientific consensus, when there's a weight of evidence, if you prop up some fake experts in the news media, blow that up, it creates the, perce the perception that there's a lot of different perspectives on this issue, that it might be 50-50. And this whole, this whole thing of the sort of false debate, false media narrative of, you know, trying to show for every expert, trying to show a contrarian voice has really done a lot of damage. We know the vaccine autism controversy uh, is a famous example, but also climate change and other issues. And I think that's been really problematic. The need for the media and other outlets to, you know, interview someone who's received a side effect from a, from a vaccine and then um, present that as an equal sort of case versus, you know, decades of, of scientific research and, and the weight of evidence. Um, and maybe I'll briefly talk about this. We've done, uh, we've created some interventions to try to help people uh, spot these sort of persuasion techniques. Um, and in the lab, we sort of joke around uh, with Harry Potter metaphors. Um, but uh, my favorite one is that I think the sort of modern disinformation age does require a new defense uh, against the dark arts. Uh, and it was Severus Snape who indeed said that if you want to undo uh, the dark arts, you need to come up with solutions that are as creative um, and as flexible um, as the, the tactics that you seek to undo. And so we've been trying to conceptualize this idea of a, a vaccine against fake news. It's a metaphor, uh, I should say that, to accurately, <laughs> accurately <laughs> communicate. Nobody's getting a jab after this, uh, uh, um, after this talk. Um, the media, now again, we didn't, we didn't call it a fake news vaccine. It's an interesting story. We called it inoculation because it follows the inoculation metaphor, uh, but the media kind of turned this into a fake news vaccine and now kind of run with it. Um, 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 but see, but the thing is, vaccine is slightly misleading because it implies full immunity, uh, uh, which, you know, the, the, the metaphor is not giving people. Um, uh, but the idea is this, that if I expose you um, to a little bit of misinformation, just a, a tiny injection of weakened examples of strategies to try to manipulate you, um, you can create mental antibodies um, and then actually spot them when it happens to you. So we put people in these simulations, we expose them to a little bit of the informational virus, allow people to build up cognitive antibodies, and then at the end we test them uh, to see if they're uh, more susceptible. And we do this with uh, apps. David talked about one app. So this is called Bad News, and it's done in collaboration with a media organization called Bad News. Um, and basically, you step into the shoes of somebody who's trying to deceive you with, uh, with fake news, and you build your own fake news empire, um, and, uh, and the goal is to become a fake news tycoon. But in the process, you immune, immunize yourself against the very tactics that are used against you, including the context of climate change. So let me just give you a very, uh, a few brief examples of how the game works. Um, so here you're impersonating Donald Trump, and um, you're saying, after long deliberation with my generals, I've decided to declare war in North Korea, hashtag Kim Jong done. <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, basically what's happening here is that uh, uh, this is part of what we call the impersonation technique. 
So people are being fooled by impersonation online. Um, and what better way is there for people to learn from experience? As, as uh, David was talking about in the Bayesian metaphor earlier, people learn from experience. So you attract followers. You can't be too ridiculous, because then you lose all credibility in the game. Um, but basically, do you see that the Twitter handle of Trump is manipulated here? So it says Trump with an N instead of uh, uh, an M. So most people don't catch that the first time around, but they do the second time around with a different example. So you can tweet out lots of ridiculous stuff. Mainstream media is a massive conspiracy. Hashtag fake news. Meteor alert, large space objects set to hit the US West Coast, hashtag be safe. You create your own hashtag, so you start trending. Uh, again, NASA, right, it's manipulated. Um, and you, you, you earn a badge, and then you go on to, uh, uh, to the next level. And what we actually do is we expose people to these techniques before they play the game and afterwards. And we find that people really improve in their ability to recognize these sort of persuasion techniques. So it's not about what's right and what's wrong. Uh, it's just showing people the techniques that are used in the media uh, to try to manipulate people for political, often political purposes, and that we hope that people can then recognize these techniques when they go out in the world and, and maybe be a little less uncertain uh, about what somebody is trying to uh, persuade you of. And we, it's modeled after real-world events. So for example, somebody impersonated Warren Buffett uh, here by manipulating his Twitter handle. It had one T instead of two. Um, and he started, this account started tweeting out stuff, invest in what makes you happy. Uh, and you know, it was, it was complete bogus, um, but it gained millions of followers in, in no time. So these, these things are really happening. Should we, should we leave it there for questions? And, yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. Question. yeah. Yes, um, so um, yeah, th thanks for this. Uh, so I would like to go back to like the, the fundamentals of, um, of the post-truth argument, which goes back for me to the, to the term post-truth. Um, is it an accurate terminology? Does it convey the meaning that we're hoping uh, to send? And worse, does it mislead? Um, I remember when I first encountered the term, I thought it was, first of all, eye-catching. But I, I started thinking of a dystopian um, uh, theme, as if the pursuit of truth uh, was behind us, that the achievement of truth is well, beyond us. Um, and in fact, I recall in a very recent conference that I attended that it was submitted that possibly this isn't a world of post-truth because, well, um, factual falsities is nothing new, mm -hmm. um, but one of post-shame, one where we no longer care whether it's true or not. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I don't like the term post-truth. I don't use it all I, at all. I don't use fake news either. I think you know, misinformation is something I, I do. But uh, as, as we're saying, I mean, the crucial thing, I think that's such a good thing to point out is that we pointed out the, the, what, you know, the, the, what is new is the, is the media, the, the, the ability to do, the, do these things, and also the growth of counter strategies is new, but the, the shamelessness of it I think is is also and the, and the manipulative use of it for specific purposes, you know, is, is new. I think the, the sh I don't know. People have always been shameless, you know, bullshitters. Surely. And the other thing is important to recognise the difference between bullshit and lying. Mm. In that most of the time we're talking about bullshit. In the outright lies tend to be you can often spot them. Call me out. The bullshitter is someone who doesn't you know, actually is the liar should be respected. I like liars, because liars have a respect for the truth. They know what the truth is, and they don't tell it. But they do actually know what the truth is, whereas bullshitters couldn't care less whether something's true or false. It is, so proving what a bullshitter says is wrong has no influence on them whatsoever. They just carry on and say something else, because they have no concern for, as you said, it's the shamelessness of having no concern for the truth or falsity. And that, I think, is possibly a slightly novel phenomenon. You know, we have a scale in psychology called bullshit receptivity. 
um, and that measures people's receptivity to bullshit. Um, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's a real, it's a real, it's a real construct. Uh, um, I, I agree. I also I agree that post-truth is not. Um, I, what I think it, it it's very much uh, dystopian. But I think that's what it's supposed to mean. It's not that we're living in a, in a post-truth world. I, I very much see it as a dystopian thing where everyone's running around with alternative facts and, and not a reality. Um, but it's very interesting because Baruch Fischoff, who's a, who's a colleague of ours who wrote a foreword to this book, wrote, and I thought it was very interesting, reading this inspiring volume, I had the feeling that none of its contributors endorsed its dispiriting title uh, of the post-truth society. And I think, I think that's true. I think it's, uh, but he mentioned it's a looming possibility. And I think, you know, obviously it's a dystopian future, but the fact that it, it seems like a looming possibility is something um, to, to keep in mind. We don't, you've just done a, I got a conversation. You've done a book plug on that. Book plug. Uh, okay, David. Book, book plug time. Yeah. Sorry, got it, can't resist it. Sorry. <laughs> persuasion, yeah. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Persuasion. In, while I'm getting my book plug ready, is there any final question? Anyone from a, a woman? Yes. Yes, that's that, great. My name is Nelly, and um, um, I, I live in Royston, and I, I came here for the lecture today. My question is um, related to your observation earlier um, about p those people who actually um, look for uh, confirmation of, of, of what they believe in. And um, as, as the professor said, uh, they actually, uh, for their reality, it's absolutely rational what, what they're doing. So how, how do we get along with these people? And I, I listened to this interesting book, The Righteous Mind. Perhaps you're aware of this yes. book. Uh, and, and the author starts with how do we get along with these people? So, um, and in, in terms of the Brexit debate or the Trump debate, how do we convince these people of what we believe in? Uh, maybe how, how do we communicate? Yeah, I think it's a tricky uh, it's a tricky question. So Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The, the Righteous Mind, in, in which uh, he makes an argument that we just need to, to understand sort of the other side, no matter how kind of vile we think uh, the other side is, which, which I think uh, it's an idea a lot of people are uncomfortable with, because it could imply that you're endorsing you know, beliefs that are sexist or racist, uh, um, and, and trying to, a lot of people just don't want to understand that, um, and that creates uh, a big uh, conflict. But I think what's, what's important is that facts are social in nature. You know, facts are facts, we have scientific facts, but w what happens is in our daily lives, people look at the social nature of facts. We look at what people around us believe, you might say, oh, not me. Uh, but you know, the reality of it is that uh, for a lot of us, uh, facts are what your neighbor believes and what other people around you believe and how they interpret the, the facts. And I think the key thing is, and, and the Office of National Statistics has some, some great uh, information on this, on the social value of the numbers they put out to try to actually, for us to also contextualize what statistics mean, how they add value to people's lives, not just to report the unemployment or the inflation or immigration, but actually contextualize for people um, how it's socially relevant. I think that's a helpful What I'm tool. more interested in is how do I communicate with my neighbor, let's say, who votes uh, okay. it? Okay, I mean, I, th I think in the end, you know, we shouldn't be trying to persuade people and, and to tell people they're wrong in their, in their beliefs. And I think, as I said, this idea that we actually have to acknowledge that some people come from, have got their assumptions, you know, are, are of, a t of a range which does not allow them to change their mind in a way that we, we perhaps, we, we might um, perceive as being valuable. And, and we have to acknowledge that, that people, 
everyone's bonkers in their own way, is what I'd sort of say. We all got, we're all got crazy beliefs. We're all very strange people when you scratch the surface, or you, maybe you don't even have to scratch the surface. Many people are overtly strange. And that's, you know, it's fine. It's, you know, that's what makes us, what makes us human. And we, I think we just have to learn to, to deal with that. The problem, I think, is when somebody attempts to, to impose their restricted narrow view on other people, and either through gaining power or through other means. And I think that that, I mean, you could say it's a, it's a liberal perspective, but I don't see any reason to apologize about that. And on a practical note, I think if you attack people, they, they don't respond well directly. So maybe yeah. trying to find common ground, yeah. uh, even when there's no non-overlapping curves in your beliefs, trying yeah. to find some common ground and, and then starting the conversation. At least in terms of your values, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. You might share values. And the, and the other thing is respecting audiences. I think it's one of the big, the other big things is apart from this sort of shamelessness that's, that's you know, developed and which is such a negative thing in society, is the lack of respect for other people, the lack of, the terrible thing, the you know, lack of politeness, the rudeness that you see on social media, the casual rudeness to other people, which I think is an appalling development. And so uh, having that respect for people, even though they disagree, you disagree with them and they disagree with you, I think is, is an absolutely essential step in that, again, which is, Bit of old-fashioned liberalism thing. Anyway, and of course, plug. the art of reading, uh, the art of statistics, and a good book. Bye bye. Anyway, it's for. <laughs> so I can't resist it. I, I, there's, they got some upstairs. I'll be, they'll be selling them. I'll be signing them. You'll if be anyone signing wants to them. Buy. Right? I'm good. signing yeah, one. Right. This is my bit of persuasion. Um, I have no uncertainty whatsoever that this is a really good book and, and great, <laughs> great, book. great, great value. And <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.